Well, let's pray together as we're still standing. Your word is indeed a firm foundation. And I pray that we would have the experience tonight of tasting that word and more importantly, the one to whom your word points, namely yourself, as sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Victory parades. Victory parades. We're all, I think, at least a little familiar with the practice whether it's of the sport type or the military type. Nearly every major professional sport in the U.S. has one for their respective champions at the end of each year. And many countries still regularly feature such parades as commemorations of historic victories on the battlefield, if not recent victories. While my wife and I were on vacation in Boston in 2011, I vividly remember coming out of the subway onto the streets downtown Boston right after the victory parade celebrating the Bruins championship that year had gone through. And it was chaos downtown. A strange concoction of diverse smells, confetti everywhere on the streets, and all manner of trash indicating the joyous and raucous nature of the celebration. The Bruins had won. It was time to get the whole city together and parade the team through the streets of downtown to both celebrate and commemorate their momentous victory. A few years before that trip to Boston, while in college, we had the opportunity to go to Rome. And I remember being in awe as we were walking from the Colosseum along the Via Sacra, and we came upon the Arch of Titus, this magnificent piece of architecture constructed in the year A.D. 81 in commemoration of the Roman siege and triumph of Jerusalem that had taken place just a decade before. The inside of the arch, when you look up into it, partially depicts A parade, a parade celebrating this infamous military victory. And the most well-known scene, at least to most people, shows the spoils of the Jerusalem temple, especially the menorah being led out of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman army under the leadership of their general at the time, Titus The meaning was clear. Rome had conquered Judea. 
time for a victory parade, or as it was then called, a triumph, the Roman triumph. We're familiar enough with the modern-day parades, but I would venture to say we're a little less familiar with the specific kind of parade called the Roman triumph. A handful of writers from the ancient world, especially Josephus, first-century Jewish historian and Plutarch, Roman historian, mention the triumph and describe it in some detail. And to help us gain a better sense of what it involved, to sort of get a picture in our minds, I want to quote from Murray Harris's excellent commentary on 2 Corinthians, where he sort of gathers up this data and gives a, a brief summary. So here's how he describes this Roman triumph. At the head of the procession came the magistrates and the senate, followed then by trumpeters and some spoils of war, such as vessels of gold. Then came the flute players, a head of white oxen destined to be sacrificed in the temples, along with some representative captives from the conquered territory, including such dignitaries as the king, driven in chains in front of the ornate chariot of the general. And then finally, the victorious soldiers followed, shouting, Hail, triumphant one! And as the procession ascended the Capitoline Hill, some of the leading captives, usually royal figures or the tallest and strongest of the conquered warriors, they were taken aside and into the adjoining prison and executed. That's a picture, a brief description of the Roman triumph. It was as World History Encyclopedia notes a spectacular celebration parade and a lavish and entertaining propaganda spectacle which reminded the people of the glory of Rome and its military superiority above all other nations. At its heart was the honor, the glory of the victorious general displayed especially by the presence of his captives in the procession. So with that picture in your mind, with that description in your mind, let's turn to our text for tonight. Continuing on in our series in 2 Corinthians, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 12 to 17. Here's what Paul says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is God's word. Amen. The passage has two main sections. I think you can see them pretty clearly. They correspond to the paragraph break. So the first section is verses 12 and 13, and the second section is verses 14 through 17. In the first section, Paul reveals his internal angst, we might say, over the fact that he has not met Titus at Troas, revealing a deeper internal anxiety over his relationship with the Corinthians. And in the second section, Paul reveals his thankfulness to God for the paradoxical nature of his ministry. Or to put it more succinctly, verses 12 and 13 depict Paul's anxiety, while verses 14 to 17 describe his apostleship. And there's something for us to learn from each one of these sections. First, Paul's anxiety. Verse 12 picks up where he left off earlier in the chapter and even at the end of chapter 1 as he now circles back to detail some of his travels. Take your eyes and and look at verse 23 of chapter 1. We'll read a few verses here. He says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So there's a bit of a tumultuous relationship that Paul is navigating here with the Corinthians. Instead of visiting Corinth again as he originally planned, he wrote them what he calls this letter that was full of tears. Some people refer to this as a tearful letter or a severe letter. Instead, he writes to them this letter. It was mentioned right there in verse 4 of chapter 2. Then after that, he proceeded to go north, where we pick up in our text, up the Aegean coast of Asia Minor from Ephesus to Troas, hoping to find Titus there. Why did he not cross the Aegean from Ephesus to go to Corinth, which was the original plan, and instead write a tearful letter and go north to Troas? He was anxious to hear how this tearful, severe letter that he had written them 
was going to pan out. He was anxious to hear how it would be received by the church in Corinth and the effect it would have on their relationship going forward. And as our text makes clear, while in Troas, he realizes that the Lord has granted what he calls an open door for fruitful gospel ministry. Praise the Lord, we would be saying. Like, that's amazing. The Lord opened a lot of doors for Paul to the places he went. Yet, he does not find Titus there, and so perhaps surprisingly to us, after some, no doubt, initial successful gospel preaching, he leaves the work in Troas, departing across the Aegean for Macedonia because, in his words, his spirit was not at rest. He was anxious about the impact of his tearful letter. Now in Macedonia, a time that he characterizes later in chapter 7 by these words, fighting without and fear within, in Macedonia, Titus now finally arrives with some good news. Paul recounts this later in chapter 7, verses 5 to 9. The basic gist of it is that some things have gone well. (laughs) He comes with good news, and this news is very comforting for Paul. For example, one of the things that have gone well, they disciplined the unnamed offender whom Paul now asks them to forgive, as Pastor Helm so helpfully laid out for us last week. That was last week's text. Well, that's something that went well. They responded to his tearful letter in a positive way in that sense. But as chapters 10 to 13 of 2 Corinthians make clear, other challenges still remained. But at least for the moment, Titus has arrived. Paul is comforted. Paul is relieved. And the plan going forward is to send Titus back to Corinth with this letter, the letter we know of as 2 Corinthians, ahead of his own planned arrival in the hopes of re-cementing their relationship and gathering up the collection for the church in Jerusalem. More on all of that will come later as we continue to go through our series in 2 Corinthians, but it's all sort of important context to have in your minds now as we look at this text. But I ask, what are we to learn from this? Verses 12 and 13. Instead of trying to answer one way or another the question that a lot of people ask, which is, did Paul make the right decision to leave Troas or not? Here the Lord has opened an an effective opportunity for ministry and he decides to leave. A lot of people ask, should he have done that? Instead of trying to answer that question, I simply want to reflect briefly on the depth of Paul's love for the Corinthians. That's what I think these two verses are ultimately showcasing, are they not? It can be easy sometimes for us to think of Paul as a sort of intellectual, stoic, busy, writing theological tomes 
undistracted and unmoved emotionally by the realities of life. But nothing could be further from the truth. Here we have a glimpse into Paul's heart for the Corinthians. Here's Paul, the premier missionary church planter, taking the gospel where it has not been before, leaving. Just get this, get this. This is him. This is Paul we're talking about. This is him leaving a divinely open door for fruitful gospel ministry in Troas because his mind and heart were anxiously, all-consumingly fixed somewhere else indeed upon someone else, namely the Corinthians. Ultimately, under the providential hand of God, his decision to leave, whether right or wrong, at the least confirms his words from chapter 2, verse 4, that he has abundant love for them. That's undeniable. Do we have this kind of love and concern for one another. How often are we anxious about each other's spiritual well-being? Let's learn from Paul here. My prayer is that the Lord would increase in us more and more such, shall I say, holy anxiety for one another. And we know it's holy, godly anxiety, and not worldly anxiety, if I can put it that way. Later in the letter, Paul has this distinction between what he calls godly grief and worldly grief. I'm just applying that godly and worldly or holy and worldly, those adjectives to anxiety here. We know it's the good kind or the holy or the godly kind of anxiety that Paul has here because of what Paul says next in verse 14. Without skipping a beat, but thanks be to God. In other words, the state of his heart at this moment is at bottom underneath the anxiety for the Corinthians full of gratitude to and confidence in God. This eruption of thanksgiving then launches him into one of the most beautiful and weighty descriptions of his apostolic ministry, which is the second section of our text. What is he specifically thankful to God for? Two things, both found in verse 14. So look there again. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That's number one. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's number two. Those are the two things that he's thankful to God for. And here Paul uses two metaphors to draw out the meaning and significance of his apostleship. And then I would just say, by extension, all genuine Christian proclamation and service. 
I've already introduced you to the first metaphor, the triumph, the Roman victory parade in which the victorious general would lead his conquered captives in triumphal procession. But now we just have to see how Paul applies that here. Remember, as I described the processional, there were more parties in the parade than just the victorious general and his captives. There were also other Roman troops, obviously enjoying the honor of victory rather than the shame of defeat. In other words, the idea of being led in triumphal procession has more than one possible meaning. The phrase in verse 14, leads us in triumphal procession, is the ESV's attempt to alert us to the fact that the underlying Greek word here does refer to this custom, does refer to this victory parade. And it's a good translation. Yet, as it stands, it still remains ambiguous. It could be understood to mean that God in Christ leads us as his victorious soldiers in his triumph. Or it could be understood to mean that God in Christ leads us as his conquered captives in his triumph. The imagery on its own will support either interpretation. Compare, for example, the NIV, which removes the ambiguity by deciding for you, the reader, It translates, verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. But that's an interpretation. And the question is, is it the right one? (laughs) Are we the conquerors or the captives in this triumphal procession? Are we the victors or the vanquished? And what difference would it make? Boy, I lingered over this question for a long time this week, mulling it over and over and over in my mind, trying to discern what Paul was trying to say by alluding to this custom and how it might fit into the larger context here of what Paul is after in describing his apostolic ministry And so here's where I landed, okay? You test it. Paul himself says, test all things. Hold fast what is good. So you you test it. Here's where I landed. I think Paul appeals to this custom because he wants to do two things at once. And so I, I might be cheating, but I'm saying it's a both and. I think he appeals to this custom because he wants to do two things at once. He wants to articulate for the Corinthians, the deeply paradoxical nature of his ministry. What do I mean by that? I mean, on the one hand, he wants to communicate that his ministry is victorious because it is God who always leads him in the procession. Yet on the other hand, he wants to stress in contrast to these super apostles that we'll hear about later on in the series. These folks who are all about power and rhetorical savvy and 
preaching for hearers and for money. He's got them in his mind right now, I think. And so on the other hand, he wants to also stress that his victory comes through defeat and suffering because he is led by God as a captive in Christ, the suffering Messiah. The metaphor, being led in triumphal procession, therefore, points at one and the same time to both honor and humiliation. However paradoxically it may seem, But Paul, as was so often the case, puts it in a distinctly Christian key. Not just honor and humiliation, but the fact that the glory comes through the shame. Not in spite of it. As one author put it, here is restated the strength in weakness theme that pervades the letter. Yeah. See, that's our title for the whole series. And I think Paul is starting to get at that idea right here. Here is restated the strength and weakness theme that pervades the letter. To be sure, his ministry is marked by suffering. But so far from that disqualifying him as a minister, which is what the super apostles were claiming and why the Corinthians are confused and What am I supposed to think of you, Paul? Rather than that being the case, God's leading him in Christ as a suffering servant actually legitimates his ministry. Christ's humiliation and crucifixion, the suffering Messiah, is reproduced in the life of his servant. That's the first metaphor in which we see Paul, the captive, glorying in the victory of his captor. Thanks be to God, he says, who always leads us in this triumphal procession. What's the second metaphor? It follows directly from the first, and it's another aspect, in fact, of this triumphal procession, this custom Namely, the metaphor of fragrances and aromas. Now we're in the world of smells, right? Fragrances and aromas. And this occupies him from the end of verse 14 through verse 16. As we are led in God's triumphal procession in Christ, Paul says, God spreads a fragrance through us everywhere we go. And he calls that fragrance, that aroma, the knowledge of Christ. That's the fragrance. I love how a a pastor friend says this. He says, To breathe in the gospel as it is preached by God's happy prisoners is to be welcomed into knowing the living Christ. That's an image. To breathe in the gospel as it is preached by God's happy prisoners is to be welcomed into knowing the living Christ. So how does this 
fragrance spread everywhere we go? That's what he says. Through us, end of verse 14, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere. How does that work? Well, verses 15 and following give us the answer. For or because we are the aroma of Christ. Do you think of yourself that way, Christian? Have you thought about yourself as the aroma of Christ? You are. Everywhere we go, as the aroma of Christ, Paul says, therefore the knowledge of Christ goes. And such proclamation of him, especially when it comes through the vehicle of a suffering servant, is a sweet and pleasing aroma to God. Did you catch that? We are the aroma of Christ first to God. What's more, the fragrance is not only a sweet and pleasing aroma to God, but it is also an aroma among everyone in the world. Everyone we come across. And the way he describes it here is it's an aroma among those who are being saved on the one hand, And on the other hand, an aroma of those who are perishing. An aroma among those who are perishing. And the key here is to see that how one responds to the gospel, to the aroma of Christ, the knowledge of him, determines whether this aroma will be to them one that leads from earthly life to eternal life, or from a state of earthly mortality, death, to a state of eternal death. The gospel of Christ is a watershed like this. There's only two ways to go. Go this way, saved, life to life. Go this way, perishing, death to death. Where are you tonight? Are you among those being saved for whom the aroma of Christ in your life is from life to life? Or are you among those perishing for whom the aroma of Christ is from death to death? Oh, how I pray that every single person in this room would be among those who are being saved. The aroma of Christ to everyone in this room would be an aroma of life to life. But if you're here and you're not sure, please come talk to me afterwards. Resist the inclination to just sort of quietly get up and leave, just come, come find me. I would love to talk to you.
Well, Paul says we are, as Christians, the aroma of Christ. The stakes are eternally high. No wonder he exclaims at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? This is weighty. People's lives, eternal lives, are at stake. Who is sufficient for these things? And in one sense, of course, the answer is no one, right? God alone is sufficient for these things. But that's not exactly where Paul goes in this context. Skip down just a few verses. Ignore the chapter divisions. They weren't there in the original. They're added much later to help us find our place. So just ignore the chapter division. But skip down with me to verse 5 of chapter 3. Paul's still on this same thought here, same train of thought. And here he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, right? That's, that's true. We are not sufficient in ourselves. But watch what he does next. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, the answer to his question, who is sufficient for these things, however shockingly it might be to our ears, is simply, we are. We are. By God's power. We are. Verse 17 then Notice how it begins with four. Verse 17 then serves to clarify how and in what sense we are sufficient in contrast to the many others who preach mainly to line their own pockets and to showcase their own rhetorical ability. So here he has a direct reference to these many others. Look at verse 17 again. For we are not like so many. It was true then, it's true now. These people exist. Peddlers of God's word, meaning what they care about ultimately is the money that comes in their pockets from this ministry. Paul says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The evidence of our sufficiency from God, Paul says, for this ministry, for his ministry, and by extension, all ministry of the word, all Christian ministry, the evidence of our sufficiency from God for this is that we don't peddle the word of God for profit. We're not like them. Rather, we speak, and he has four modifiers here of the speaking. We speak out of sincere motives, sincerity, 
two, as commissioned by God or just from God, we speak out of sincerity and we speak from God. God has given us this calling. Number three, we speak in God's sight. He is the primary audience for whom we seek approval. No one else, no man. And fourthly, we speak in Christ. In and out of our union with him and in his power. These are the hallmarks of authentic, genuine gospel proclamation. And Paul is convinced that God has made us sufficient for this task. Amazing. The only other place in the New Testament where this word triumph or the phrase leads us in triumphal procession occurs, the only other place in the New Testament where it occurs is Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. I just want to read the context of that and you'll hear how amazing this is. Beginning in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him or in the cross, in his work on the cross. Christ triumphed over Satan, sin, and death, accomplishing for all who would Receive him the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and a thousand things more. He triumphed through his suffering. So now he continues his triumph through his, no doubt in varying degrees in different times and places, but nevertheless, so now he continues his triumph through his suffering people in their ministry of being the aroma of Christ in the world. Proclaiming the knowledge of Christ so that all may smell the fragrance He continues his triumph, his triumph, through us, his people, especially in our suffering. For it is Jesus who conquers, not we. Jesus who heals, not we. Jesus who is Lord, not we. So by God's grace, in Christ's strength, 
and for his glory. Remember, thanks be to God. Let us gladly take our place, like Paul, in Jesus' victory parade as his blood bought, boasting in weakness, glory-bound slaves, servants, spreading the fragrance of him in word and deed everywhere we go. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we are the aroma of Christ, that everywhere we go, our mouths would be open with the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus. May our mouths be open in commending to people the beauty of Christ, crucified and risen for them so that he would become to them a fragrance from life to life. Thanks be to you who always leads us in this ministry. Continue to do your work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.